Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another podcast of Isaac's Autism in the Wild. I'm very lucky today I have Judy Bailey with Visions for New Beginnings, which is a residential uh, youth placement, uh, housing, like basically home housing for kiddos, residential housing for kiddos that, for a variety of reasons, and we talked about this, um, Judy, before we we got started. So part of what I want to do in this podcast is I want to talk about group homes and talk about some of the stigmas that are associated with it. Um, I am part of a few uh, online Facebook groups, social media groups that are specific to families who have loved ones with special needs. And there are times where people have questions, they're in crisis, and they're posting questions and they're about you know, recommendations for residential group homes for their child because of behaviors and whatnot. And it's interesting when I watch some of the comments about how that knee-jerk response is, I would never do that to my child, or just, you know, some of the stigmas that are associated with it kind of go back to that mindset of institutions, of like Eastern State Hospital, olden um, day methods of how we take care of individuals with disabilities. And I think some of that still carries over. The other thing that I see is, you know, you may have one family who, it's like if anything, there's matches, you know, there's, um, every family has a different dynamic. And so it's like providers, it takes a little bit for you to find the right fit for your kiddo. So I invited Judy Bailey on my podcast, because I wanted to talk about this. And specifically, let's just start uh, Judy, with just talking about visions for new beginnings. Um, first of all, my first question is, um, how did you get into the group placement? Because you have how many houses? Five houses. Five houses. And each house has, uh, it depends on the house, I know, but um, you have a total of how many residents with you at any given time? We can have a total of 14 at any given time. We have four permanent homes where kids reside permanently. And then we have an ERS program, which is enhanced respite services, which is where kids come in for 30 days at a time. And, and we kind of assess, put a program together, send it home for the parents and try to, you know, give them some resources before they make a decision as to whether they need to place their child or not. Gotcha. And how did you get into this? I don't think I've ever asked that question before, Judy. Well, I don't know if it's exciting, but the whole thing is, is that I, you know, I worked with kids at risk kids and we did a lot of street ministry and stuff over on the West side. And when we moved here, I, I needed a, a job. I'd kind of, I was totally out of my movie. My whole life was over on that side and did lots of things and was plugged in, but then didn't know what to do over here. My husband found me a job in a group home and I went and applied and I, you know, worked for them for two years just as a caregiver and kind of watched and saw what was going on. And I felt like I really wanted to open my own home because I could see how 
we could really, really help these kind of kids in a different way. Like I had lots of ideas, but I was just a caregiver. Sure. So um, I had an opportunity to do that and I did it. But how, long have been, how, how long have you had your group homes over here on the West side of the state? For over seven years. I started okay. yeah, seven years ago. And we opened a new house almost every year, except for this year. And that's been nice because it's a, it's very hectic to open a new house. But I, I feel like it's a good number because I like to be really involved with the company. And I feel like when they get too big, then sometimes, you know, the, you can't, you can't be as involved as you need to be yeah. uh, to care for these kids. No, so. I absolutely agree. I'm a hands-on person too. You know that because that's yeah. why we connected so much because I'm a very... Exactly executive exactly. and I wouldn't want it any other way yeah so talk about the kiddos that are involved that actually are residents with you uh what's the youngest age that you've had come into one of your homes uh nine years old and then they can stay until 21 yes all of my kids are most of them are all still with me yeah. And so, and this is some of those, the, the, I'm just trying to kind of give everybody a picture of what the structure of the, your houses are. I asked you originally because I, this was just information for me. Some of the kiddos that you have placed within your home are what we consider wards of the state, meaning that they were probably um, in foster care and they were in what you call the BRS, which is the Behavioral Residential Service Program. And then when that isn't necessarily a good fit. You have a couple of those kids that then come for placement within Visions. Is that correct? It's more of a situation where they have some kids that need to be placed in foster care and there isn't a placement for them. So then they turn to the, yeah. to the out-of-home services program, which is a voluntary placement program where the um, guardians or the parents actually choose to place. So we take those children from that side when they don't have placement. And unfortunately, that happens often. There isn't placement on that side for foster. Yeah, which is unfortunate. But yeah, um, and, and that's, again, I mean, there are so many kids in the foster care system. And one of the things, what a staggering statistic, and I don't know, you know, during COVID, what these numbers look like. But there was, you know, one summer that Isaac Foundation was called in to do some training uh, for foster care families because at that point, they were having a difficult time finding placement, residential placement for kiddos that are on the autism spectrum because of a lack of training. Foster care families didn't have the training to be able to support the kiddos with autism spectrum disorders and other disabilities. And so at Sally's house here in Spokane, one summer, I think they said 80% of the kiddos staying at Sally's house temporarily while they were looking for residential placement were on the autism spectrum. So we do know that there is a high number of kiddos in the foster care system that meet the criteria for autism spectrum disorders. So the majority of the kiddos that you have in your houses are actually voluntarily placed by the parents. And yeah. that and that happens because there are behaviors that are so extreme that become safety crisis situations where they have to find, they have to pull the kiddos out of the home because it's just unsafe to keep them there. I mean, we talk, we know that sibling violence is something that happens a lot, um, you know, just violence against the parents. And it's really difficult as much as you love your child and you want to keep them at home and you have that mindset, oh, my child's going to live at home forever. 
sometimes that is not practical because of safety concerns. Because if the child with autism is hurting and is violent towards parents, caregivers, or siblings, or even family pets, where, you know, we have to look at alternative placements, correct? I mean, yes, that is correct. And we look at it that the families are in crisis. They need help. Sometimes they have other children. And that's why we do what we do. We're, we are in this business to help the families and those children. I don't like to judge those parents because I don't, I, we do this eight hours a day and we get a break. They do this 24-7 and sometimes it's two of them and sometimes they're single parents with other children. And as we've gone along, we've gotten more and more educated, but there's just not enough education out there for the families and the community in a whole to understand this community of people, the autism community. And so um, I know that people a lot of times will judge and say, oh, that must be the parent's fault that that child's acting that way. And really, it, it you know, you you would have to have an autistic child to ever be able to say something like that because it's not it's not fair. I I have never had a, a parent ever drop off a child where that parent did not literally break down and bawl. That is the hardest decision they've ever had to make. And what I have to tell them is a year later when they are when their child in this structured environment has become better and better and better. I have to say that was the best thing you did for your child. My greatest hope is that we can eventually then when that child has learned how to get their needs met at a, at, at a health in a healthier manner than violence or, you know, self-injurious behavior, then we we could put those children back in the homes, but we need more education out there. Uh, there's too much judgment in the community. There's, you know, even, I, I know that you educate the police. What what, what are they? First responders, yeah. The, yeah, the first responders. You educate the first responders, but we still have a community of first responders that haven't been educated in our area. They need to be because they also come to our facilities and judge when we have a child that may be having a huge meltdown. And then all of a sudden they're looking at us like, what are you doing to this child? And that's, it has nothing to do with that. You know, it's, it's just, you know, their anxiety, their diagnosis, uh, their ability to cope with certain situations. And that's why we're here is to help them through that kind of stuff. I agree. And some of the stigmas that I really hate is number one, again, you're a bad parent because you had to put your child in, in a residential group home environment for the safety, for their safety, as well as the safety as others. Like that's somehow um, yeah. a reflection. That's so horrible. The other thing that I get really um, angsty about, and the more and more I work with some of the group homes in our area, the more I feel like, I also feel like there's maybe from first responders, as well as also even from schools. Um, there are some negative stigmas associated with the group homes because, you know, when kiddos have extreme behaviors, it oftentimes is then a reflection of the parents. Well, what are the parents doing? But also too, when you have kiddos that are having bad behavior, all of a sudden somehow it becomes the association with, oh, well, this group home needs to get this under control. And it takes so much to build a program to help. And it's individualized. And also a lot, when you're not giving a kiddo until 9, 10, 11, 15, 17, 
you're having to really work hard. The older that they are, the harder it is to put a good solid program in place to get to the root of the behavior and change it. And you guys do a wonderful job pulling in professionals to come up with behavior plans to work on a lot of this. And you're absolutely right. One of the things that's incredible is, is you have kiddos in your program for a year and you look at the difference between where they were when they first arrived and then where they are just after a year or two years or three years. And it's incredible. But that is because you guys pull in people to help. Um, I, I know Isaac Foundation provides training for you guys, for your staff members. You also work with different uh, behavior intervention specialists in order to come up with behavior intervention plans to work on some of the behaviors. Yes. And also then you are doing community engagement activities when you can to get them out and involved in the community um, as much as possible. And, and again, it, it's frustrating to me that despite all the things that I see group homes doing to make them better people, there's still a lot of negative association when it comes to group homes. I mean, do you feel it? I, oh yeah. Oh yeah, totally. And especially from the schools, they're very judgmental. But one of the really, the things that has helped us with our relationships with the school is I hire people who work at the schools, aides or teachers during the summer. And then they come and work with us. And uh, I have heard them say over and over, I'm, this was such a great experience for me. They come back every summer, but because now they see the other side of it, then when they go back, they can be more of a bridge. Like that's not what's going on. You, You don't understand. It's a whole different situation. This is the kids' homes and Yes, it can get chaotic and and crazy, just like any home can get when you have four teenage boys and, <laughs> and then, uh, four staff and ABA and ABA techs and you know you've got all this activity going on and and then you know uh, these are unpredictable sometimes boys and so they have we have another level of what the things that can the dynamics that can go into the day. <laughs> The other thing that I feel strongly about is when people who come to work in group homes are usually people, either they're they're studying to do um, psychology or social work or something like that. So they have a real heart for what they're doing. The other swing of people that come to group homes are those people that have a just a bleeding heart and an empathy for these kids. And usually they have trauma in their own background. And so they have this attitude, like, I want to make a difference in the world and make sure other kids have a good life, feel good, you know, all of those kinds of things. One of the things that I believe in, in my agency is that I really work strongly with my staff. I put them through trainings. As you know, you've done some of the trainings for my staff multiple trainings. I learn their personalities. I I take their weaknesses and help them grow in those areas because I don't like the constant in and out of the children's lives. I don't believe in kicking people to the curb because they make a mistake. I believe in, in helping them grow in that area. And then everybody grows together. The kids grow, they grow, the kids grow. I grow, everybody grows, and then we become a, a stronger team for our kids and, and, and a family because 
they because everybody matters. I think that's where I've become fortunate with with my team because they come in and we value them and then we train them and we put them through, you know, we if it's a dangerous situation, yes, we're going to get rid of people where it's a, a licensing or a danger to the children. But regular things, I can work with those things. And what I found is that it it makes a difference. I wind up with people that someone else may have fired. And even some of my leadership has said, we got to get rid of that person. And I'm like, no, we can work with this. And they wind up being one of my uh, most valuable, valuable assets to the company as far as these kids' lives go. You know, Judy, I, believe- I think that's a really good point because here's the other reality of that is, is that you're almost talking about what parenting is. When we get these little bundles of joy when they're born, um, we have to develop our parenting skills as they grow. Then yeah. find out they're on the autism spectrum. Newsflash, if you're listening, they don't give you a manual when your child is diagnosed with autism because there's so many variations. There's never two kiddos that are the exact same. And so you're having to develop and you know improve your parenting skills to support that child as day by day, sometimes hour by hour. And it's, so it's no different with the staff members you have coming in. They have to develop their skills and learn just like a parent learns as they're raising that child. Exactly. Yeah. It, and it, I, I, I say to everyone, if you want every emotional, uh, every emo, human emotion in your body uh, tested and learn where you need to grow, come and work with autistic kids. Yes. <laughs> They, if you think you've got it all together then you come work with them and then you're like, whoa, I need to work on that. And you will grow tremendously if you're open to learning and, and self-reflecting and growing. And it's, it's, you know, they teach us so much about ourselves. It's unbelievable, you know? And that's the thing too, is, is that even as a parent and doing what I do professionally, I'm still always growing and getting better even in my skills. You're honing your skills. I don't care how many years you've been doing it and how amazing you are, you're still gonna continue to learn new things from just working with them and having them in your life. So I think that's so true. I mean, you know, even our the most, you know, well-respected, well-rounded provider still gets better and better still until the end of their career because you're always growing with your skill because- Yeah. Um, The other thing that I think that is cool about having, you have a lot of different types of students that come in and work for you while they're going to school because they're getting some of that experience. And the thing that I love about that too, is you really invest in your staff with trainings. So then as they go through school and launch and, and move into their respective career, you're actually improving the quality of, of their, of their skill because of the time they spent working with you too. And so I think it's, it's a beautiful thing. They may not stay with you for 20 years, but the time that they do spend with you, they're learning and they're adding that to their toolbox of skills that they're going to have as professional once they graduate from college or move on into graduate studies too. So I love that too, is you really, again, it's the difference between investing in your staff or just having your staff in there to serve that day-to-day need. And so I think that's really important. And if, you know, if only we could have that wrap around in all sectors, I think, you know, life would be a much better place. So let's talk about one of the things that you mentioned when you were talking about how you got started was you observed and there was things that you felt like you could do better. 
So, and then you've been able to do that with your own agency. And so what are some of the things that make visions different in the sense that, you know, you can do things how you wanted to do things. So what does that look like? Well, I, I look at it like the client's needs come first and my employees needs. And so first of all, investing, just starting with the staff, investing in my staff to help them grow so that they're appreciated and they can be better caregivers because if I treat them like they matter and their their voice matters, then they're going to want to stick around. They're the ones on the ground floor working with these kids. So that was one of my main things. When I was working for an agency, I, I might come out and, and talk about, well, this child or that child and what I thought might be able, you know, something that might be able to be changed um, or that this isn't working or that isn't working or what I found or what I saw. and it was just always kind of disregarded. And I felt like, you know, the people, and I wasn't, I wasn't offended. I'm just saying, I saw that, you know, the people on the floor are the ones that are with these kids day, every day, every day, working with them and seeing all this, and we need to hear from them. So it can't just be the owner or the program managers saying these things. We got to hear from from those who are with the kids every day. So that's one of the things. One of the other things is, you know, you get funded for a certain amount of services for the kids, but if the kids need that, and if we need more groceries, then I just, I, I put extra money in for the kids' needs. I don't, I'm not in this business to make a bunch of money uh, for myself. I'm in this business to care for the kids appropriately, that they get their needs met, that they eat really good meals, just like I would make my own kids, you know, not a bunch of processed stuff. I don't believe in all that food coloring. I just want to keep things healthy for those kids because they already struggle with enough enough stuff. And so keeping their diet really clean and good as best as I can. And so that's another thing, letting the, the staff cook up wonderful meals. And that's part of the whole family atmosphere. We're not just making packaged mac and cheese and some fried, you know, whatever. So it's really, really important that part. And then embracing everything about these kids that is so wonderful and getting them out in the community with crazy things that people don't think they can do, like river rafting and, you know, just stuff like that. And they go to all the activities downtown in the, in the, at the park all summer long, we take them to the fair, you know, just, and they, they all go to the river and swim. And one of the things that, that we do that I wanted to do was just getting everyone together like a family all the time. So every Sunday, of course, not with COVID, but this is what we've done always is every Sunday having a barbecue all summer long, some kind of barbecue, special food, and all the houses come over, the kids. So the kids live together in their own houses and who they live with, those are kind of their siblings. And then when we come together, it's kind of like the cousins are all getting together and they all know each other. The staff all know each other. So it's just fun because everybody gets together. So it makes it fun for the staff. It makes it really fun for the kids. And sometimes some of the kids can't stay more than, you know, 20 minutes, but that's okay. They had that experience, you know, and we're very, you know, we really are cautious about that. We're cognitive of, you know, that when the kids are 
when it's too much for them and we know how to bring them in and certain where they all need to sit and stuff like that to be comfortable and, and to enjoy themselves. So it's really, I think just giving them the best life that they could possibly can, but implementing that so that the staff understand that that's their job. Your job is to make this a fun family, Yes, a healthy, fun family, not just, you're not just a caregiver. So then in all essence of creating that, then you have the staff who are in, enjoying themselves much more when they're at work because they're in this family environment that they're enjoying too. And um, the bond between them and the, and the kids is really strong. It becomes very, very strong because they're doing fun things together all the time. Yeah. And then when it, the times get tough, it's not so hard you know, when we have to do the tough things like redirect and possibly, you know, things get there when they're having a hard time with their anxiety and things like that. Yeah, um, that is so true. I've gotten to know some of your staff and even, you know, met many of your kids because they come to some of our events, our special needs station visits. We've had some of your kiddos come and enjoy those. And then also our family fun day in the summer where they come, they have a good time. So it's always wonderful to see them just being out and, and enjoying life. And again, one of the things I also love about you guys too is, is that understand community engagement is not enjoyed by everyone because really one of the things that we have to do for you guys is, you know, some of the kids that are in, in your group homes, they really need very strict schedules, very controlled environment in order to be their best selves. And that means going out and doing community engagement is not that super awesome. Um, they don't enjoy it. And so it's kind of experimenting to see who right. likes doing what so that you can find the things that they like so that community engagement makes sense. Yep. Um, but for those kids that really enjoy that, they get to take advantage of those community engagement opportunities as much as possible because your staff is very out there. Yes. Yes. And we have a, taken a step to work a little bit different with our ABA services than other agencies. What we've done is we've married ourselves. We've contracted with Lilac City Behavioral. Th through that, what we've done is really think alike. We have the same philosophy and we felt like this was a really good match because I see a lot of in the past ABA coming in, staff here, ABA here, Nobody really knows who's in charge. They annoy each other. Just not a good environment for the, not a good environment for the kids. So we've kind of married with them, and we've offered an offered an opportunity for kid for our staff to become ABA certified and and then become a, a behavioral tech, so that our staff are actually the behavioral techs underneath Lilac City behavioral during that four hours a day that they might, uh, that, that that child needs that ABA service. Um, we also do training, our safety care training together. We're contracted there where we can train each other's staff in that. We went with safety care because that's what they do. And that again, makes more sense because then when they are putting the programs together for us, the part of the program is dealing with those behaviors. And if we're not doing the same kind of uh, behavioral modification, a prevention and modification program as they are, as far as the redirection and if we have to escort or eventually re 
restraint a child, we we have to be we have to be doing the same program. So consistency, um, which is yeah. amazing. That's all you want, really. Is the more consistent we can be, the better in terms of just overall success we have. And so that's another thing I think is really unique about you guys is that you guys approach your ABA services different than other agencies. Well, then everyone gets trained because ABA doesn't do any good if it comes in. And actually, let's go back to the family. If it comes into the the family home and the family doesn't engage in the program, it's not going to make any difference. It will make no difference at all. Same with with these with the agency. If they come in and they do their four hours of ABA, but my my staff aren't doing the same thing with the with the kids, then it's a moot point. It doesn't even matter. It's not going to make any difference in the whole wide world. It's we're just wasting money. Yes. So so it's all about. I I just I have this conviction about our tax dollars and utilizing our tax dollars to the best that we can and not wasting it. So that gets me into a whole, don't get me started on that. I just feel like we can, we could funnel things differently where it, it would be more effective yes. for the families and the children. Maybe I, that's my next, my next thing that I do in life. Right. That's <laughs> We have a lot of great ideas. Unfortunately, we're just two people trying to fix problems that are so ginormous that it's really difficult to feel like you're actually making a difference, but we are making a difference in our specific circles like for the kids that are in your program you are making a difference for the kids that are involved in the Isaac Foundation we are making a difference and so I still feel like it's worth getting out of bed and I feel like we are making change I wish we could change things on a much bigger scale but we'll get there hopefully we'll get yeah now with that being said I'm going to ask you a question and I didn't ask this before we went live so I don't know what the response is going to be from you but I think I know how do you feel about the state? Because the state, correct me if I'm wrong, the state actually requires for group home that community engagement is required to take place. How do you feel about that? Because I have my own opinions about required community engagement activities. Um, when you're talking about this population, how do you feel about the requirements that the state has? I don't feel like that should be regulated, period. I, I feel like these are individual people and they, and like we said earlier, they might come to the activity for five minutes, or it might not be something that they can do that day. Yes. And we can't take them out and pressure them. We might we might find out, well, you know, so-and-so isn't coming today because they're, you know, we're just not getting them out. It's not something they're, they're going to do today. And I just feel like that pressures the kids. It can cause more behaviors, more incidences. It just it just isn't fair. I think that the regulation comes from some agencies just not doing right by the by the people. Now we're being regulated over it, but it's not fair to the children. It just I agree. So basically, what how I see this whole thing happen is some agencies were not doing right by the kids. Then the agencies, the you know our state agencies, then say, okay, well we are going to make it a requirement for licensing that you engage in a certain number or a certain amount of time of community engagement per week. And the thing that is really bothersome about this is, is that number one, I feel like it's really unfair because we are taking a neurotypical perspective of what a complete life should be. And like, you know what I mean? Like happiness isn't like we're using a neurotypical mentality to decide to be God and decide, oh, okay. So because this is how I find enjoyment, which is community engagement 
therefore you shall find the same um, out of it. And that's not the case for our autism spectrum, any, any disability, I believe that is not practical. And so it really infuriates me that we're using the, you know, what we consider to be a fulfilling life, those, you know, expectations and what makes a fulfilling life. And we're basically saying, and therefore you shall too. And for kiddos, that creates a lot of anxiety. And if we, you know, there's, when you talk about the disability, our kiddos with disabilities or adults with disabilities, if we were really to honor their voice and all, and some of them don't have the ability to articulate. So we have to watch their behaviors and use their behavior as their form of communication. If we were really to honor their needs and their voice and what they are, what their preferences are, we wouldn't push that to the degree that we push it with this community engagement expectation. I mean, how do you, do you feel similar or do you have a different thought on that? No, I do. I feel, I feel you hit it on the nail perfectly. Yes. It's just so frustrating. Now, what happens in a, you know, in a group home environment if you are not hitting those targets when it comes to required community engagement activities, does that become a licensing issue? Well, it's basically on the DD, it would be on the DDA side. And then I would be spoken to about that and told that, that we need to start doing that. It might be that this child likes to go on car rides and then they earn that car ride. And then we go through the drive-through and get them a milkshake or something. And they also monitor that they regulate that well they've they've gotten too many milkshakes during the week or you know that sort of thing and it's just why is the money being spent on you know them getting a treat at Cole's Bakery every couple days you know it's it's just it's just too regulated because everybody is different and with our programs they're set in a way where these kids do and this is with you know coupled with ABA where they do this this and this and they do these these three activities or or let's say responsibilities in the home and then they get to go on that car ride and go through the fast bumps i mean it it's just and then afterwards if if it all goes well then we're we're going we're going to go get a treat cuz that's what families do so you know, just the regulation of it is it it put it makes it hard on us. Yeah. Um, because then I have to say, well, how many times did you go through the fast food and get a milkshake this week? Or how many times did you go? Oh, it looks like we went four times. That's too many, that sort of thing. And so frustrating. It's frustrating. The other thing that's frustrating is we're on the ground floor with these kids. We know these kids inside and out. We, we've had them for years sometimes, and there are our kids, there are babies. And, and um, we've tried everything, and we're working with ABA, but then there's the, the state licensors and the, and the DDA workers and things like that. Then they'll come back and, and say, well, you know, why aren't you doing this? And you need to be doing that. And, you know, telling us things that we should be doing that we know it aren't going to work. That's not going to work. We've already tried that, or that's not going to work because of this kid's personality. So it's frustrating to have government talking, telling us what we should be doing when they don't even know the children. And more so now because nobody's coming out to the homes. Yeah. Oh, I can't even imagine. Yeah, it's so frustrating. Somebody way up here, 10 levels up at the top is making a decision as to whether one of my children 
are allowed to have a certain kind of item that will help their program, but I have to get it approved by somebody 10 levels up in the government. And then they had to hear it from this person below them. And then they had to hear it from this person below them. And they had to hear it from this person. And it goes all the way down to the people I deal with on the ground floor. And so who knows what the information is once it gets to the top. Sure. So I never get to talk to anybody specifically straight hand with the person who's making that decision and say, look, this is what's going on with our kid, our child. This is what's going on at school. This is how the behavior is. This is the, the diagnosis. We feel like this is going to help. And this is the reason why it's not an abusive thing. It's a helpful thing. So they want to put everything in the abusive bucket. They're not doing enough activities. That's abusive. You're going to the, the, get a milkshake too much. That's abusive. Those kinds of things. Yeah. And you know what? I, I, I equate this to in my mind, what you're describing would be having being CPS involved every day of your life, even though you're not doing anything wrong, but the level of justification that you have to provide yeah. um, is just so much more than what you're just Joe average family raising a child with autism would ever have to do. I don't have to justify to anyone how many times I gave I, I Caleb a, uh, a milkshake from McDonald's right Believe it or not, at least once a week, um, Caleb is earning a reward to go to McDonald's. You know, there are days where, you know, I get concerned about his weight and just different health factors, but at the end right. of the day, that's what motivates him to work hard during virtual learning, get all of his assignments done, have all of his therapy sessions. And if that sure. means on Fridays, he earns the trip through McDonald's drive-through. But you know what? I don't have to justify it to anybody. And it just breaks my heart because I really love you, Judy. You have such a beautiful heart. And for these kids too, because what you guys have to do in order to just help them be their best selves is so regulated, so scrutinized, that it just breaks my heart. Um, because I do see that your heart is in, you know, your guys' hearts are in the right place and you're just doing your absolute best. And that was part of the reason why knowing what I know, I was like, we need to do a podcast about this because I don't think the average person understands, you know, what group homes are, how much you guys actually you do really care about the kids. You're doing everything that you can. And it's so regulated and unfair, I think. And, and again, I understand that not every group home operates at that level that you do. And so there needs to be some regulation to make sure that there's not abuse factors. But now I want to talk about the kiddos because your kids can be there until the age of 21. And then we have to do what the dreaded transition. Um, and this is a little disheartening too. when we talk about transitions, because I feel like you guys have a really good program, but you're just through 21. And then we're transitioning them. I mean, maybe back to the home, although you mentioned that you never see a transition back to the home. Um, and that's actually one of the things we should talk about too, is that one of the deficits that you feel like there needs to be some improvement is providing family education. Because if there was better family education where you could work directly with the family, bringing in your behavior tax and your behavior, your board certified behavior analyst, there could be um, some that could make the transition back to home. If you could get training for the families and it has to be for the families because you're right. What good is it if it's only just like one parent? Yes. But really the wraparound services of training, education and a behavior intervention plan that's going to be successful for everyone. We could see more transitions back into the home, but that's not what we have right now. Yes. We, we have with us right now, 
uh, three kids that could actually live at home. Um, these are spots that uh, we could be helping other families. If we were able to uh, redirect the money in a different fashion and put uh, a, you know, one of the qualifications for the waiver to have education for the families and as well while that children's there now, child's there now. I'm not saying that this is going to be something that can happen in uh, six months or eight months or even a year. These kids might still be with us for a couple years or even three years and the families are also you know, being educated and that sort of thing. And I don't know if that would be through the state, through a, a company like Isaac Foundation, from us, from ABA, all everybody together kind of thing. But if we could get something like that, that is what is going to help the autism community because yeah. we can't just keep placing kids out of families. Yeah. It, it's not good for the kids or the families. It's so hard on them. And so what, what we need to do is figure out how do we fix this problem that we're having with the families being in crisis and and then it, it rips everybody's heart apart yeah. to place their child and it rips our heart apart. We don't like seeing it either. But if we know that it's a thing where we are going to work with the family, get everybody back together, educate the, the family, the community, we just need more education. Yeah. And um, but that it has to be a qualification of that waiver. You don't get to get your child placed unless you agree to this. Yes. And then we're fixing the problem. Yeah. Instead of opening more and more group homes to place all of these autistic kids, which we know the, the population is growing. Yes. So we need to figure out a better solution. I agree. I agree. And, you know, that's where we need to have that big discussion state level as to how we can reallocate some of those waiver funds so that we can have some of that wraparound parent education piece too. Yes. Um, I think too, you know, one of the challenges, of course, is always just the number of providers that we have access to in our community. So that has been significantly improving where we're getting more and more qualified providers in our area because I know you know, 15 years ago, we had like a couple of providers that were working here in Spokane. And we have a lot more talent that we could be utilizing in order to be able to make that happen. So I think that's a definite possibility. Yeah. So what happens when, so a kiddo turns 21, we have to transition them into an adult group home environment. And as you mentioned before, I hit the record button, um, though that is actually far less regulated. When you're talking about a kiddo that is uh, under the age of 21, it's very highly regulated, but some of the re, um, you lose in those adult group home environments, they lose some of the ability to raise them as children. Is that right? Well, I don't, I'm, I can't honestly say that it's less regulated because I think I, it, it is regulated uh, in a different way and they do have uh, strong regulation in some areas, but I, when, because of the way this, the law is that when someone turns 18, they have free agency to make their own decisions. They're no longer a minor. So at that age of 18, you can't actually tell them, you know what, we're turning the TV off and you got to get your chores done. You know, if they want to sit and watch TV all night or get up in the middle of the night and eat snacks and all of that, those are things that... I think you you lose the ability to 
give re rewards or or force them let's just say force them to do things well we don't force the kids but they need something to motivate them to get their chores done. Like I use the, I use positive reinforcements. It's like, you're right. The positive reinforcement, that kind of thing. Um, you're not raising them anymore as children, like in the group homes, the children's residential, we are able to set up programs and go, okay, this is your program. And you have to do, everybody has to do their laundry. Everybody has to do this, has to do that. And before you get to do this. But in, in an adult facility, you can tell them they have to do their laundry. But if they don't want to do it, then you can't say, well, you can't have a, a treat later then. Or yeah. you can't, you know, you we're not doing this or we're not doing your preferred activity. Because they're 18, they they can do what, what they want. And um, so you lose a lot of that. There is some structure. I don't want to speak out of, out of line here because I don't know exactly all the details. So there is structure in that environment, but you do lose the right to tell them what to do if they don't want to do it because they are 18. Yeah. So, you and know, you've got an autistic person who's actually 12 in their head and, but they're doing whatever they want. The problem we find is that if we have higher functioning kids at 18, uh, to trying to keep them in our program so that we can help step them up into the community like we would our own children. Yeah. Um, by then, they, if they're higher functioning, they're just like any other teenager. Well, I want to get the heck out of here. You know, I, I'm, I'm done. I'm 18. I'm going to go get a job. I'm going to do this, that. And it's unrealistic even for kids without autism it's unrealistic they don't understand the world out there and so we give them a step up well we want to be able to give these kids a step up and sometimes because they're 18 they make that choice they walk out the door there's nothing we can do about it and um that's gonna be hard when you heart wrenching. yes heart-wrenching because you're like oh my gosh am i gonna see you on the corner downtown i mean what's gonna happen so um are you able to follow your kiddos after they are 18 or 21 when they age out of your program? You don't Once they're out of my program, I don't have the legal right to do that unless uh, it, unless they've given me that legal right. You know, like I, I have a, a client that I worked with at the other agency that I'm actually, she lives in one of the adult group homes and I'm on her list. You know, if she wants to come and meet me, if I, she can spend the night with me if, if I want her to, you know, that kind of thing. So you can, you can get that, that set up if you want, but normally, no, you, you can't follow because once they're out of your agency, it's kind of sad too, because we've had kids that have had to be placed at other facilities that we, because we don't have what they need here in this state. And, you know, I just don't know what happens to them. Gosh, that's got to be hard. Well, it is because yeah, it is hard. Yeah, it is hard. So how do you feel about uh, adult services? Do you feel that there needs to be some improvement in terms of the services offered for adults? I mean, even with employment, how do you feel? I do. I, I feel like I do. And they're not funded well enough because, you know, they just live on their SSI and that's what they buy their food with and they pay their rent with it and all of that. So there's no funding other than their SSI for the program. If they're in my program, it goes from you're getting all your needs met and above and beyond what you're living a nice life. And then you go to a 
place where now all you can afford is macaroni and cheese out of the 59 cent macaroni and cheese out, you know, in the box or, you know, it's, it's just such a drop of lifestyle, but there is a really good agency in town and that is ages. And, and I know the gentleman that runs it and he's the only agency that I would, would trust right now to put my kids in, but he's, you know, he's full. Yeah. It's just kind of a, I I think we need a better, we need more resources out there for that. I do know another company that's opening a, an, an adult facility here soon. And I would trust, trust that, but I just don't know. I just hear all the horror stories. So I don't have anybody to really recommend except for um, that one agency to my, to my parents. And I'm telling you, I hear the same thing too, where, you know, families meet, here's, you know, the sad reality is that I, maybe, you know, this Judy, but I'm not going to live for forever. I know it's, I can't believe it. I can't live for forever. So I have to be thinking about what are we going to do when we're no longer in in a place to be able to physically care for our kiddos on the autism spectrum. And, you know, also it's a big ask to ask siblings to take on that responsibility. And so it's really hard because finding an appropriate residential placement for an adult is difficult. So I'm always working with families, trying to help them brainstorm alternatives. And um, it's difficult. You're absolutely right. It is difficult. But I think as a community or as a state, we're going to have to be looking at more options. It's just something where we're not going to be able to continue to turn a blind eye to appropriate yeah. residential housing for adults. So, so one of the thing, things that happened with us with that stigma is we had a, a kiddo that um, had a lot of mental health issues. And a lot of times our mental health kids get dropped into, into our program. And we're not really equipped for the mental health. We, we are behavioral modification. The behavior, of course, put him into our home, but he had a lot of mental health. So we went to the and said, you know, we we have to put in our notice on this child because we have done all we can with him as far as behavior goes. But he he has so much trauma from his background that he really needs some mental health. He needs different kind of care than what we can give him. Everybody in our leadership pretty much has a, a psychology degree. So it's it, when we go to the state and we say, look, we, we're not really equipped for this. That's not what we do. We're behavioral modification. This child needs this, this, and this. Then they come back and go, well, we're, that's not going to happen because there's no place like that in our state uh, that we can actually do that for this child. And so we said, well, if you're going to place this child in a whole nother facility that is that is just like ours, another group home, then that's just a waste of time because the same thing's going to happen. He's going to run away. He's going to hide out. He's going to do all of those things because he he he's in his fight or flight and he and he flees when he's you know under that kind of pressure. And so they went ahead and sent, put him into another group home. And we said, well, wait a second. But then what happens to him now isn't, you know, you have no part of. And so we didn't have any really say in, wait, that's not going to work. We've been working with this kid for two years. We love him. And this is really hard for us to say here, we can't help him anymore. Get him the right kind of help that he needs. And then you put him into another group home. So the same thing happened. But what happened was one time he 
he ran away and we couldn't find him for about five days. It was awful. So by the t if their a child's gone three days, we have to report it. And then it goes up on the news, went up on the news. And then, and I never knew this till later. And I'm glad I didn't because it was hard enough to have him missing and all of that. And that's part of his behavior. Okay. It's not because we're doing something terrible. It's part of what he does to cope. He flees. Then all kinds of comments on the social media about what a terrible agency we are. Can you believe that kid? Look how skinny he is. They must not be feeding him. Da, 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 da. All of this stuff. And what they don't know is that he is a skinny kid. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was hard to get him to eat, but he ate a lot of stuff. Um, but, you know, and he loved to cook and he'd eat everything that he cooked. So, you know, not knowing the information that they needed to know all the details about this child, the fact that he had mental health issues, traumatic situations, um, was put into a facility where, you know, was behavioral modification, you know, his, his coping mechanism was fleeing. So not understanding anything about him and his history and then judging is, it's just ignorant. Yes. And frustrating when your staff who work so hard to care for these kids and they get no recognition from the community at all, except for what are you doing to this child? Yeah. It's just a, it's a sad, sad situation, I yeah. think. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah. Those internet trolls, that's what I call them. The internet trolls that have to like post their opinion. Um, you're absolutely right. It's so short-sighted and they don't know. They haven't walked a mile in our shoes to know that, you know, really, you guys were really the one thing that was tethering that kiddo to like security and stability. And yeah, it's very, very frustrating. But. Yeah. So eventually he got placed out of state in a program that that was right for him. So so happy about that. We just need re more resources like that here in our state. Yeah. Again, goes back to the tax dollars where we can actually funnel that money differently so that we can meet all the needs of all the kids is, kids that are out there that that have issues. Well, Judy, I won't take up much more of your time. I really appreciate you joining me for this podcast. Like I said, this is a topic where, you know, obviously there's a lot of stigmas associated with group homes and, you know, for, for good reasons, because they haven't always had stellar, it's like a bad example hits the news. And then that is kind of the lens that all people use to evaluate group home environments. And so um, I like to at least make sure, you know, we take good examples um, put that out there so people can understand the good things that are going on in group homes. And so I really appreciate you and everything that you do at Visions because like I said, I've been really impressed, not only just with the people that you employ, but just your philosophy and wanting to take care of the kids. So yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Thank you, Judy. I really appreciate you joining me for this episode of Isaac's Autism Wild. If you have more information, we're going to put Judy, or if you need more information, rather, I'm going to put Judy's contact information for Visions for New Beginnings in the comment section of the show notes so that you can find that. And you can always, as always, reach out to us at the Isaac Foundation um, if you have questions. In the meantime, we'll catch you next time on Isaac's Autism in the Wild. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.